Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Test for March 8th, 2018, the Stormy Weather Edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. And lo and behold, we are all sharing the same space. We're at CBS News Radio headquarters in a CBS radio studio with our host, John Dickerson of This Morning. Hello, John. Hi, of CBS This Morning, you mean. Of CBS This Morning. How many... Fucking times do we have to say CBS in this introduction? <laughs> a lot, a lot. Keep going. Many times. And that, um, of course, is Emily Bazelon of CBS's New York Times. <laughs> uh, it's so great to be with you guys I know, all together. It's a delight. It's a, it's so nice of you to come all this way just to be with me. Oh, we're very pleased. I got a chance to watch John at his real job this morning on the set of CBS this morning. And it was so great. He's such a pro. He's so elegant and smart and quick. There's so many people buzzing about doing excellent work all over it. It was really fun. On this week's GabFest, the first war of the Trump era. But it's not a real war. It's a trade war, and it's about aluminum foil. We will talk about Trump's tariffs. Then the weekly legal morass of the Trump right White House. We will talk about the crazy Stormy Daniels saga and maybe a little bit of Sam Nunberg. And maybe there's probably some other legal thing that will appear as we're taping that Emily will have to opine on. (laughs) Dangerous, dangerous invitation and opening. Don't you think that probably there is literally, as we speak, there's some other legal shenanigan going Entirely on? Entirely possible. Oh, yeah, like the witness tampering thing. Right. That's a whole other one. <laughs> exactly. You can talk about that. We got it. Yeah, we have to. Uh, yeah. It seems that it wasn't tampering, but it was definitely talking to witnesses. And we're talking about Donald Trump speaking to members of his staff who are being interviewed by Robert Mueller. Then Jeff Sessions takes his immigration fight to California. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And don't forget, we've got a live show coming up in St. Louis, Missouri, on May 2nd at the Shelton Concert Hall. Tickets at slate.com slash live. Join us on May 2nd. It's going to be really fun. Missouri obviously has some very interesting political developments going on now. We look forward to talking about that. We will possibly, one of us will try to blackmail the other. We'll do something like that. It'll be, we'll, we'll, will reenact what is going on in Missouri on during the show. We will not do that. That would be, Actually, that would be bad. That would be, yes. <laughs> that would definitely get us in trouble. President Trump, a zero-sum mercantilist in his bones, split the country in an entirely new way this week, returning to a favorite campaign subject, a subject where he's actually been consistent, where he has policy views that have held steady over Since time. Since the 1980s, I believe. Yes. Seems to be his core fundamental belief about policy is this yes. wrong-headed notion of protectionism and mercantilism even. Yes. So he announced... Would you tell people what mercantilism is? Mercantilism is 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 the economic principle. I'm going to butcher this um, and all our economists listening will can correct me. The economic school of thought that um, existed really before... Uh, Adam Smith came along before before the ideas of, of freer markets and the division of labor came along, which held that a country was richest by hoarding its own gold, by making everything itself, by trading as little as possible with its partners. Right. Being entirely self-sufficient. Um, a closed exactly. system. A closed system. Then, then you have everything yourself. You don't have to rely right. on other nations. Right. right. And you which don't you- make other nations rich. You don't get them rich by giving you giving them your money. And right. so this this attaches in goods and services in a way that with the immigration policy too, in terms of just the kind of wall, the theory of having a, a wall. Yes. Yes, yes, it's philosophically exactly. related, and obviously it is entirely at odds with the world order that emerged after World War II, in which there was this notion that nations would be better off in a collective. Um, uh, stable regime of trading. Everybody benefits when we're all trading with each other more. The world is like one giant producer and consumer. And it creates also, in addition to creating economic benefit, right. it creates 
political and and uh, well military or non-military benefits, right. which is that, that it, you're much less likely to go to war with a country where you have economic relationships. Right. And in the wake of World War II, we adopted, the world adopted that system deliberately in order to try to prevent another world war. So now we are going yes. to start cutting and fraying our ties. So the president announced that he would impose 25% tariffs on imported steel, 10% tariffs on imported aluminum. As we were taping on Thursday morning, he's planning to sign them today. Uh, president, of course, has said most notoriously about this, that trade wars are good and easy to win. Their reactions to his announcement about tariffs have come fast and furious. The stock market dropped instantly after he announced them. He announced them sort of spontaneously, incidentally. It was sort of, it was, did not appear to have been a highly well thought out um, scheme. His top economic advisor, is the chair of his National Economic Council, Gary Cohn, resigned. The European Union announced that they may levy retaliatory tariffs that they might levy against bourbon and motorcycles and orange juice, which is a wonderful set of things to levy tariffs. Well, right. Or as we Kentucky. call it, Saturday yeah. morning at my house. <laughs> <laughs> but it was very deliberate, right? Kentucky is the home of bourbon, where Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is. The motorcycles right. are like Wisconsin. 10 miles from Paul Ryan's district, etc. And orange juice is Florida swing state. And Republicans in Congress are seething over these tariffs. So, John, um, you just, we just saw you interview Ben Sass about this, but uh, this is the president's most consistent position, isn't it? So uh, should we be surprised that he actually follows through on it? No, it's a it, most consistent position, perhaps after immigration. But what's interesting here and what's different than on immigration is that he can move unilaterally. And there is a feeling going back to the Gary Cohn and the slapdash nature of the way this was put together. And I think you put this in, when you're evaluating the nature of the president's leadership, you put this in the basket with the transgender uh, decision on the military and also with the first travel ban, which is a kind of slapdash effort meant to show that action is being taken on key priorities. So this is something the president can grab and do and, and show that he's moving on his priorities. Well, okay, and, but, but the difference with the transgender ban is that actually in the transgender ban, the military didn't want it. In this case, the secretary of commerce, his trade representative and his some of his key economic advisors do want it. Do, but then the Treasury Secretary and his top economic advisor but they can't don't stop want it. it. And the Secretary of Defense and and State don't want it. So And that well, was wait, that was particularly telling because the justification Exactly. That's where I was getting tariffs. Sorry to no, interrupt no, you, no, but I just good. find this remarkable. This Right. Go ahead. I mean, the the justification legally that Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, and the President have put forward is that this is in our national security industry that we need to bolster our steel industry. And yet, Mattis, our Secretary of Defense, is saying actually there are national security threats for alienating our allies in this and attacking them in this way. So what the President is using is uh, Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. So that is a little-known corner of this um, trade law. And the idea behind the trade law, and we want to get back to the economics that David set up in the first place, but this goes to Emily's point and goes to the sort of really circuitous route the president is trying and using. And this, by the way, using circuitous routes to achieve policy goals by other means, it used to be something that conservatives railed about with previous administrations because, of course, that's not what the president is supposed to do, to kind of use laws in ways in which they were not intended. And the idea is basically, should the U.S. get into a real war with, um, you know, weapons that need a lot of, of steel and aluminum, they don't want to be in a negative position to not be able to produce uh, steel and aluminum now or not be able to produce the, the the weapons of war with these materials. Now, the first problem is, A, Mexico, China, and South Korea, who provide us with a lot of our weaponry, would be unlikely to stop doing so in the case of a war. That's the first thing, so it's not a real threat. Secondly, those are the countries that we would need in kind, or those are the kinds of countries, in addition to the European nations that are that are hurt by this, who we would need in a live war. And third of all, we still produce a majority of our own steel, actually. Yeah, and, and certainly <laughs> enough to take care of the needs of a war. Yeah. And fourth of all, the president almost never publicly justifies his actions using Section 232. He he justifies it on the grounds that David talked about earlier, which he's welcome to do, 
but he can't do it should or it should not be available to you if your argument is you're doing for national security reasons. So he's kind of giving up the, the game every time he argues it on economic grounds. He's giving up the fact that it's obvious that he's doing this for economic reasons and not national security reasons. And I think also, I mean, these tariffs are not a major factor in the, the global economy or even the U.S. economy. And so the reason there's been a strong reaction to them is this fear of a slippery slope. And the national security justification is part of that story of, OK, well, then what if other countries start invoking their national security right. interests for trade barriers? And what if we get sued but under the rules of the World Trade Organization and then the Trump administration either pulls out of the WTO or ignores the ruling? There are all these are we on the brink of this kind of larger trade war questions that I think in some ways are um, overshadowing the actual right. like magnitude of these tariffs. And, and can I just make one quick political point, which is this is speculation uh, and so should be treated as such. But if you look at the fight that the president is picking here and what he is doing with immigration in California and the fact he may travel to California to uh, kind of press this idea that California is a sanctuary state, essentially, is you see him engaging, at least in those cases, in two public fights in which, as the defender of his positions, he can reassert his connection with his base. So it feels like this is all base maintenance, um, which is is shocking. It may just be psychological maintenance. I want to do stuff. I want to be fighting the fights I came in to fight. But if it is to the extent it is base maintenance, then it suggests something that we haven't much seen, which is actual erosion in the base that needs tending before, uh, you know, there was the idea the base would never move ever. If these are in some ways offered as a way to tend the base, then that gives you some sense of really how tough his political straits are, not only his approval ratings down, but he's even even having to but, tend but to But don't you base. think it's much more likely, John, that this is uh, psychological reassurance for him rather than it's some grand political strategy? Uh, that I, he's somebody who... He just needs to be yeah. affirmed and, uh, and wants. I think that's that right, and it's a, and it's a, and this um, is a way to get it. I think you're right, and also they, they they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, you know, tending to his base also makes him, uh, and I know this because he said it, makes him feel psychologically up. Well, also there's the 18th district um, special election yeah. in Pennsylvania, right, where. In this particular place, seeming to defend the jobs of steelworkers is popular. And so I wonder if if that's the strategic element here and that actually that's like a perfectly smart thing to do that race is close, but it's, you know, seen as red Republican territory. And um, if Connor Lamb, the Democratic challenger, loses that race on this kind of pro-union platform that he's running on, that will be hailed as a bellwether for Trump and Republicans. So even if that's what he gets out of this, that's like a short term gain. That's a good point. Why do you think it is, Emily, He David says asking a question, which he's going to answer himself first, <laughs> that, Excellent. That, uh, that Trump has this view about trade? Because some, some people have said, oh, Trump is being dragged to this by Peter Navarro, his, his uh, economic advisor, and by Wilbur Ross, um, that, they've, that Trump is, is being pulled to this. But no, it's, it's clear that Trump has held these views himself, that, that with Navarro and Ross, what he's done is he's found people who will agree with him, and that's why he's elevated their, them within his administration. Um, in my view about why this yes, is... Yes, please answer this question. <laughs> I is, think we're going to talk about Japan in the uh, 1980s. No. Well, well we it, could. It, well, that's probably part of it, is that he is a real estate developer, and real estate development, as I think we've talked about on the show, works differently than other forms of economics. That yeah. In real estate, only one person actually can... Zero sum. ...develop something, right? So if I get the right to develop this land, you don't. It's not something where we both mutually can do it benefit. and mutually benefit. And and I think that uh, that's not really how the rest of the global economy works. The rest of the global economy has these highly interlinked supply change and, and uh, you know, divisions of labor. And that Trump's, this is a case where Trump's own intelligence and his own success in his business, I say this very rarely, has led him to make conclusions about economics generally that are completely misguided his business experience is the wrong kind of experience because it's based in this this um particular field where the rules of global economics don't really apply right i mean of course if right i mean he doesn't have to be bound forever by that view and yet he seems to be he's been fixated um on the trade deficit for 
a long time, right? And one imagines that originally it was this nice club that he was beating President Obama with or whoever was in office that he was angry at. And now he's looking at those same numbers in a position to try to do something about it. And so he's propelled by that same instinct. And I think the other thing is this is an issue in which essentially Almost every expert aligns in favor of free trade and, uh, you know, abundant global economy, including most Republicans. It's sort of a core conservative principle. And he likes to take positions sometimes where he just says, well, all the experts are wrong. I know that because I was elected and everyone said I was going to lose. And so you sort of feel this like fish shaking defiance of expertise here. What's interesting here is what he goes to the mat for and then also what Congress goes to the mat for. And so Congress, 100 Republican members have written letter, a letter to the president saying, don't do this. There's efforts to try to perhaps block him with legislation. And it seems to me it sets a benchmark for, A, what presidential effort looks like. You know, so how hard over is he for this? And then compare that to other things he says he's concerned about, like, say, school safety and legislation in reaction to the the shooting in Parkland. So has he thrown his back into that as much? Uh, and if he hasn't, why hasn't he? And what percentage of energy does he do for these other things relative to this, where we see him so active and engaged? And then the opposite is true for Congress. Here are Republicans really motivated and working hard to press against their president. So this sets a bar for the level of energy they exert. Now, when they don't exert that amount of energy for other issues, then that gives us some indication how much they really do care about those other issues they say they might care about. Do you think it matters that Gary Cohn left? Is his departure meaningful in any way? Doesn't it depend who he's replaced with? I mean, if he's replaced by someone who shares his pro-free trade views, then his particular presence seems less important. Whereas if some, you know, anti-trade Wilbur Ross, Peter Navarro type comes in and that seems like a significant loss of a seat at the table. I mean, in terms of Gary Cohn personally and whether we're supposed to give him credit for walking out the door, it seems to me that, you know, when you take a stand of conscience about tariffs that you weren't willing to take in the wake of Charlottesville or, you know, concerns. Totally disagree. Really? Why? Because Charlottesville is not his business. Charlottesville is not. That's not his department. He is, his job is to be the economic advisor to the president. His job is to, to give the president the best economic advice and to try to get the best economic policy. And if the president then like so willfully ignores what he believes and what he thinks is right, then he should leave. I mean, if the president says terrible things and is a, you know, a racist and, and a rabble rouser, that's really bad and no one should serve him. But the, the, the idea that the economic advisor has a special responsibility to quit after Charlottesville, but to stay after, after his, his, you know, his entire raison d'etre is is cut from under him. Seems to me crazy. I agree that he didn't have a special responsibility, but there was this sort of, I think, deliberate effort to cast him as troubled by, you know, the kind of both sidesism after Charlottesville. And because he's Jewish, that seemed to resonate in some way. And he didn't do anything. So the fact that he's leaving now after, by the way, he's cashed in his $284 million in stock options that, you know, he got a special deal with in order to serve, which is a law we do have to allow very wealthy people to serve the government without taking a big loss. I just, in, in the sort of what do you think about Gary Cohn in the world? This doesn't move me very much. And he might also have resigned, not necessarily because he was taking a huge stand on trade, but just kind of like he'd gotten the tax cut bill, helped get it passed. He was kind of worn out. And this is a this is a White House where An it's excuse. a really hard. It ain't easy. And so it was kind of like, you know, why? What's the benefit of sticking around? I think the larger point, though, is, of course, when you look at the total pace of departures from the White House, it's extraordinary. It's three times the pace of the Obama administration, twice the pace of the Reagan administration. And that was those numbers the Trump were before. See, they're ahead. They're the number one. That's right. And those leading. numbers were even those are those are low numbers because those numbers don't take into account Hope Hicks leaving and also a whole bunch of people who have left somewhat quietly. It doesn't take account. Maybe it does Rob Porter burn but a whole bunch of people who've kind of gone and been pushed out Snuck because out of the, the security clearance problem uh-huh. and right. so or all the jobs they didn't fill right so, right. so the fact they that they're that's they right can't leave if that's a great no point. one's ever been there right it's turnover <laughs> of a smaller bench but um but that so the question that what's interesting there to me is a back to this notion of businessman it was always a misshapen appellation to say that they were going to have a businessman in the white house because he's not a businessman of the kind that people meant when they talked about bringing business acumen to the White House, a businessman from a huge corporation who has to deal with management issues and all of that 
That's different than what President Trump is. Whatever company it was, this kind of turnover in a company, if it were a public company, the share would be trading at about a half a nickel because it's a sign of chaos. And the other thing is, how do you recruit people? I mean, it was chaotic in the administration in the early days, but there were a lot of people who said it's my duty to the country, even though this is crazy, I've got to hang in there. But now, after more than a year and all this chaos and what it's done to the reputations of the various people who stuck their neck out for the president only only to have themselves undermined. Not to mention big legal fees as Robert Mueller asks to talk to them yeah. or might do so. Uh, what what That is not a, a clarion call that people are going to rush to the employment office to, to sign up. And so then it gets into a really n- troubling problem because, you know, people look at the White House and, and I think you can make a case. If you look at what the president has achieved on taxes, if you're a fan of tax cuts, then he's done what you want. He has gotten some movement on North Korea. Maybe it's not going to lead to a peace talks, but he's gotten some movement on North Korea. You can make a case if you're apt to support Republican candidates that, you know, he's gotten some things done. And yes, it's a circus. But the problem that when you talk to students of the White House and, you know, people who worked in previous White Houses, the reason you need the place to be organized efficiently is that all presidents are surprised by some big crisis And you need to have the system kind of in place and working so that when the crisis hits, you have adults in place, you have norms in place, and even under those circumstances, it's hell. So in this case, you have chaos. How do you handle that inevitable crisis when it comes? That's a very good question. TBD. I want to add one final quick note on the tariff point, which is one of the things I find so demoralizing about President Trump is his consistent ability to alienate the people who should be our friends and befriend the people who should be our enemies. And these tariffs are a classic example of that, which is the the countries that are most likely to be hurt by this. I mean, Kenya and Mexico have been temporarily exempted, but Kenya and Mexico would be hit very hard. Those are our two closest allies in many ways. And certainly they're our neighbors. Europe is being hit hard by this, if not our best friends, our second best friends. And China and and Russia, which are our global adversaries, the closest things we have, are not really damaged at all. And it's just and 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 then there's this crazy weird blowback around coal. I don't know if you guys saw this that a lot of um, steel that is made overseas foreign gets steel, processed in is, coal plants. It's made it's made using high quality U.S. coal. And so if we are making that steel less attractive, that coal suddenly has less value in the market or there'll be less demand for that coal. And therefore, the very people that Trump has, you know, talked about endlessly, these coal miners are are going to be harmed by it. So they're, I don't know. I mean, I think you're going back to your point, Emily, at the beginning, which is that actually these tariffs are really small beer and that the real problem is if they spill into retaliation and and there's a lot more of them. But but even if you even focus on that, the like, small beer, it's even, irrational, yeah, it's right? Stupid, I mean, it's something small like, beer. yes, 97% of the American jobs that depend on steel are in downstream industries. They're not actually producing the steel. They need the cheaper steel that's coming from Canada, Mexico, Europe, et cetera. It's just the winners and losers don't even line up right. Like if these were the forgotten Americans and they were really winning, you could see it. But, you know, if you wanted to help the steel workers who are losing their jobs in Pennsylvania and Indiana, you could have programs where the government comes in and supports their salaries in some way, right? They're like targeted aid for those people that is not damaging to lots of other, you know, working class Americans. Of course, we have bonus segments for Slate Plus members every week. And this week, we are going to talk about whether American parents now want to have baby girls more than they want to have baby boys. To hear this segment and other Slate Plus segments on all sorts of other Slate podcasts, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to join. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. 
It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This week's chaos update. John, can you make a chaos update? That's not like a... That was for somebody Wilbur, who works for CBS you News. A, you want to like ticker tape? Like, yeah. Good. Thank better. you. Much better. That was very good. That was... <laughs> Sorry. I, I wasn't clear what you wanted. Wrong sound effect. But you fixed I did it. Laser, the lasers sound, which yeah. was for our... This, uh, Something else. Anyway. Well, what other sounds do you have? <laughs> Those are your three sounds. Yeah. All right. So this week's chaos update. <laughs> no, now I think you're supposed to talk. <laughs> we had uh, legal action on all kinds of fronts, all of it weird. Uh, Sam Nunberg, a former Trump campaign aide um, of erratic, <laughs> erratic behavior, uh, undertook a bizarre media tour to announce his plan, now abandoned plan, to defy a subpoena from special counsel Robert Mueller. Uh, there's this crazy story in the New York Times on today, Thursday, about the president talking to witnesses who've been speaking to Mueller and potentially tampering with them, although that seems like a strong word to it's use. It's just you're really not supposed yeah. to do that. <laughs> Well, actually, can we? Well, anyway, well, we'll get, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah. And then, and then probably. Oh, and I forgot. Uh, Kellyanne Conway was accused of oh. Hatch Act violations, two criminal violations of the Hatch Act, which nothing will happen about that. But the main, um, the main Trump legal chaos of the week was around former presidential paramour or pre-presidential paramour Stormy Daniels, the porn actress who sued the president this week to void the NDA, the non-disclosure agreement she had with him to stay silent about their 2006 affair. The NDA, which was part of an agreement in which she was paid $130,000, allegedly, by the president's lawyer, Michael Cohen. And there also comes news that the president's lawyer, in fact, won an arbitration against her to forbid her from from breaking that NDA. And uh, it's very, it's, it's quite hard to follow all of this. But Oh, but it made me so happy because it it took me back to my contracts class. Okay, so Emily. Well, that's great. When was the arbitration, by the way? Arbitration was last last week. week. Yeah, and he won it. Yeah, Yeah. he won that she wasn't supposed to do exactly what she did, which was file a public lawsuit um, instead of going into secret binding arbitration about the terms of the nondisclosure agreement. I see. And so so tell us about what this lawsuit is saying and why... If if she is not allowed to file a lawsuit, why did she file a lawsuit? And if it, what does it mean to not be allowed to file a lawsuit and then to go ahead and file a lawsuit? Well, her, she and her lawyer decided not to listen to the arbitrator. They didn't like the answer. I mean, the lawsuit is, it's both a stunt and it also is possible it's going to expose this contract as a, a t- total fraud. Um, so I'm going to rely for the most part here on um, Seth Abramson, who has this Excellent long um, Twitter thread about all of this. So the it seems like if she was worried about the NDA being enforced, if she was worried that Trump or or this fake LLC that Michael Cohen set up were going to sue her and make her pay a million dollars because that's the the penalty, then she would not be bringing this lawsuit. She would not be talking about this affair. Um, nobody would be doing that. But she is banking on none of that happening because in order to enforce the terms of the contract, someone has to come forward and say, like, we signed the contract and we have some rights to protect here. So that's sort of... And then the other thing is Michael Cohen has himself come forward and made statements about this agreement that would seem to also be in violation of the NDA. Then there's also this Wait, great... Sorry. T- sorry to interrupt there. So she she's betting on there not being somebody willing to actually sue her to to enforce this NDA and get a judgment against her because for Trump to sue her, he would have, Trump would have to say, I'm a party to the contract. For Cohen to sue her, he'd have to say, I'm a party to the contract. And for anyone to sue, they'd have to expose themselves to discovery in the lawsuit and bring publicity, more publicity onto it. So therefore she wouldn't, she thinks there won't be a lawsuit, but potentially. Right. And her excuse for filing the lawsuit is that Trump um, never signed the yeah. contract. Now that's really kind of um, not, 
doesn't look like strong grounds to worry about the validity of the contract because now I really am invoking first-year contracts in law school. A contract is offer acceptance, consideration, like some form of payment, and then taking that payment. And that happened in this case. So the simple missing signature probably doesn't invalidate the contract. However, there are many other potential problems with this contract that we can or cannot get into. Also, before I go on, also, um, if you abide by the terms of the contract, you take the money and then you abide by the terms of the contract, aren't you essentially saying it's a valid contract? Yeah. It's the old I mean, ski, ski lift, uh, ski ticket, ski lift. Thing, right. right. You don't at the end get to say, right. However, this is a very strange contract because of Michael Cohen's efforts to distance Trump and really himself from this contract. There are these weird and or clauses about who it's binding on and if um, Cohen is telling, so it's also not clear that Trump knew about this contract, right? So if that's true, if Cohen never told Trump about the contract, well, that's a clear violation of the ethical rules for lawyers in New York State. You don't go around signing contracts for clients they don't know about. And also, if Trump didn't know about it, then there was no meeting of the minds. That's an essential ingredient of a contract. Both parties to the contract have to understand What's going on. what they're agreeing to. Now, who didn't wasn't Cohen's original position that it was just a contract between him and Stormy Daniels. He was jumping in front of this, you know, threat, Stormy Daniels. Trump didn't know anything about it. He went and did it himself. But then what was re- revealed this week, I believe, is that there's a side letter uh, in which the the pseudonyms used in the agreement are then attached to the actual people in the agreement and that that's why that's the way in which the president gets attached to this process so it's not just between cohen and and daniels that's the way that president trump gets involved right and then the signature lines have this additional oddity which is that they talk about the ec llc that got set up it's not but but at no point does cohen sign the contract as trump's lawyer so it's not really clear who he is and then the other underlying legal problem here is the idea that right before an election, someone pays hush money to someone else. I mean, this got John Edwards indicted when that happened, right? He also had an affair that the National Enquirer was interested in. And he also had a supporter who paid off the woman he'd had the affair with. And he got in big trouble for that. I don't really see why this is Wasn't different. that a campaign finance violation in his case? Yeah, but isn't this potentially oh, too? Yeah, I, mean, I thought he used campaign money or something. Well, I thought there was, but sorry, I may be messing it up with. But no, could, no, I think that you, it was a campaign supporter. Right. But it, it shouldn't really matter, right? right? If Cohen made this payment essentially because of the election. Sure, then it's an income. Can I take Can I take a, a very different view on this? Please. Which is that, and I have been unable to determine what the staging of the contacts between Daniels and Cohen are. And so depending on how it happened, I'm, I may be wrong or at least slightly off base. But to me, Stormy Daniels is a blackmailer. Stormy Daniels has blackmailed Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has done the thing that many people do when they're being blackmailed, which is he has paid off the person who's blackmailing him. And he's done it potentially, you know, through, you know, with chicanery, with a, uh, a, a way that violated campaign finance laws that was illegal. But that basically he was, you know, trying to allay risk about an affair, a perfectly legal affair that he had with somebody 10 years earlier, not when he was president. And, and you know, it was his own sexual peccadilloes, which he didn't want exposed to the world, maybe because he, didn't, he thought it would hurt his chances for election. Maybe he thought it would be embarrassing. And so he paid her off. And I find the sympathy for Stormy Daniels or the, or the glee about what she's doing to be very unseemly and misguided. Like that, that, it's, that she is a villain in this, to, to my mind. Like I don't, see, I don't see why we should celebrate what she done or be happy about it or to feel that this is even a legitimate path for public inquiry anymore. It may be that he's ended up breaking the law and Michael Cohen ended up breaking the law, but they end up breaking the law basically because they were being blackmailed. Well, but being blackmailed and then also trying to silence a woman with whom you had an affair with, that's just like two terms for the same thing, right? I mean, Stormy Daniels, um, you know, had presumably, if she's telling the truth, valuable pieces of information. And you're right that she sold them. But we're also in this moment right now in which we're really... Uh, rethinking these non-disclosure agreements and the social costs that they bring to bear because, and this is in this is not sexual harassment. That's what you're going to say. This was a consensual relationship, so it's not right. Clear. And the non-disclosure agreement was not something she signed before she had the affair. It's something that she did afterwards as part of the blackmail agreement. 
Right. But it also seems clear there was like an enormous power imbalance here. She had a terrible lawyer. I mean, she should have, first of all, gotten a lot more money for Wait, this. You, like, come that's, on. Hold on. That's absurd, Emily. No, that's I, it's absurd. not absurd. Why shouldn't she have gotten a lot more money? Because she had an affair with the president that she was threatening to reveal. Like, that, it, it's, 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 it is, as, a, as voters, as citizens, the idea that this bit of information should be commerce, that people should be allowed to use this to exploit it and to, and to blackmail a presidential candidate over it seems to me disgusting. Like, really? I don't really know. Seems I meant me should in the sense that it seems like it was worth a lot more, um, you know, given the stakes. But, well, but also, also, sorry, go ahead. It well, just, let, me, let me complicate things a little f- further, which is what if she's telling, what if she's lying? What if there was no affair? Yeah, but don't think that. Like, there are pictures of them together. There's but, some corroborating evidence. If she's lying, David's then point, we're though, in a whole different place. Yeah. But I don't think anyone thinks she's lying. Why uh, does that matter if she's lying, John? Uh, well, she no, were. it's just imagine. Well, so, then it so would feel your scurrilous and villainous. Yeah, insert your favorite candidate ever, and then somebody comes forward and says, I had this affair, and, you know, you try and get rid of it before the, the election comes. I'm just trying to make it as sort of adding more sympathy to David's argument. It would seems to me it's in, additionally sympathetic. If you change the facts in that way, then it's much but, easier to come down on David's side. But... But I'm not going to do that because why would I do that when you're saying crazy things? Like, why should we encourage people to pay off the other people with whom they have affairs? Right. That's not I don't see how that's like some morally upright. Yes, it's legal. They signed a contract which was supposed to be binding, though it probably well, really was encourage. incredibly He's saying flawed, she's the original sa- sinner because she blackmailed. Because, well, right. But I just think the term blackmail. I mean, I see why you're using it here, but I, it's this very morally loaded term for we had an affair. I could go and talk about it. You don't want me to, right? I mean, another way of thinking about this is like this is a woman who has a relevant piece of information about a presidential candidate that could factor into how voters see him, and we would have been better off hearing that story before well, the election. And that that and then you'd say yes, it would be we would be better off hearing it, and it would be good if there were journalistic investigation of it. The idea that sexual relationships that people had before before they were president or before they were presidential candidate should be used traded for economic value in this way is gross and disturbing and i think sets a precedent that we don't like i don't think john edwards you know should have been prosecuted i think when you when you've done something you've done something sexually embarrassing when you've done something sexually embarrassing you get like a special pass no you don't get a special pass but yes basically also a morally loaded term basically kind of yes if you've done something if you've committed a sin which is going to be hugely embarrassing. It should not surprise us that people will lie about it and that they will pay money to make it go away. And then to then find crime or to find criminal responsibility in that seems to me like like a shitty way to find crime. It doesn't. It, it's this is the same problem that we had but with the Lewinsky talking, when where Clinton gets no, pinged for lying to 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 the grand jury about it. Now I feel like you're it. obscuring different things by, I mean... And of course he's going to lie to the grand jury because it's embarrassing. But Clinton never paid hush, hush money. Like, well, he didn't have the chance to pay hush money. Well, that wasn't an option. Perhaps. But, but I do think it is important here that there are campaign finance laws yes, that set sure. rules about contributions. Yes. And that's what, as far as I can tell, we're, t- we're wondering about whether it was violated. And then the other thing is, if you are going to sign such a contract, then you better make sure it's airtight and have good lawyers working on it. And well, they really, really failed that test. I, t- I tend to b- side with David on the whole initial blackmail as being the, the original sin of this. But I, don't, but I don't think, given where we are now, I do think this is actually just fascinating. And as a political matter... It's 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 relevant not just because it's the president, but because one of the challenges for any uh, Republican candidate who aligns himself so closely with the evangelical voters is there's a history of claiming that the president and his behavior in office, but also throughout his whole life, uh, sets a moral example for the country. And so now that this is out there. Uh, where do, where does everybody stand on that question? They continue um, to ignore it because it is in their transactional interest to do so. The um, And then that's an interesting fact because we're talking here presumably about immutable virtues, values, and sins. Now, question for you, Emily. This question of this arbitration, I'm just trying to figure out the whose strategy went right or wrong here. <laughs> e, was there an act that Stormy Daniels took before um, before Cohen tried to keep her quiet or was it just that she was talking and he was worried she might take a legal act was there a legal act he was responding to 
Well, yeah. I mean, a month or two ago, the Wall Street Journal ran a story about this affair and this contract and then found the secret LLC that Cohen had set up. And then she started talking without talking, right? right. She started she going didn't... on air and saying, right. I can't talk and, about this affair, and, but gee, now I'm going to go perform in Las Vegas. Do you want to come? Right. And she also said, or somebody said on her behalf, that she thought that because Cohen was talking about it, it had voided the original yes, contract. that but is my her question, current lawyer's theory, part of it, but, and the non-signed But that was all line. outside of the legal realm. Was there anything she did in the legal realm to precipitate Cohen doing what he did? I don't think so, but it's all connected, right? Sure. Because it's an NDA. Yeah, and so yeah. she, by going, going public's not quite right, but, but as publicity happened, then that could potentially violate the NDA. So then it was presumably, yeah, we know that it was Cohen or whoever is representing this fake LLC that went to the the secret arbitrator. I was just trying to come to some conclusion about, we know that the president has been um, either litigious or has threatened litigation as a strategy throughout his career. And he's yes. done it as president as well. And the use and misuse and threat and not threat with litigation has been a strategy and a tool. And Cohen, because he's his lawyer, has been a part of that. And I'm wondering if in this case, Cohen, who's essentially trying to threaten her by calling for this arbitration, is using a well-worn play from the playbook, yet in this case has landed him in a, sti- a sticky spot because then to have it adjudicated in the courts answers those fact questions which are at issue here, which is to say, was the president, in fact, involved in this? I mean, right. Look, I think it's a stunt for Daniels and her lawyer to take it to the courts. They're using this um, lawsuit to publicize facts that, pursuant to the NDA, they're not allowed to publicize, and a binding arbitrator told them that. So in that sense, like, you know, on the but if you to to take a step back in the way you're doing by invoking this pattern of Trump's um pro his sort of use of litigation, when we go back to Trump University, he was incredibly aggressive about suing people who said they had been damaged um by that program. There are these, you know, storm and drying libel lawsuits that he's brought in the past. He isn't has been an aggressive use user of the courts. And right. so in the sense that there's like a hoisted on your own That's petard right. yes. aspect yeah. of this, a hundred percent. That's yes. what I, I was yeah. petard hunting. Yes. And 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 also you. do you think that it the the power has flipped on him that it used to be that because of he wasn't the president and because he had more money, he was able to use the courts in one way. And now he can't. Now he's suddenly discovering that he can't. And we had seen that in the Trump University suit where he had said, I'm not settling. I'm not settling all the saber rattling. And then they caved and they settled. Right. So now we're seeing that again. And then you're also seeing what happens when you surround yourself with um, people who perhaps are not actually the best professionals, where you have someone like Michael Cohen signing up a contract that then, you know, a contracts lawyer goes through and finds like a lot of flaws with, even if the problem isn't that you didn't sign the contract. So, Emily, can we, uh, where does this go next? And don't, so we had uh, Stormy Daniels' lawyer on uh, CBS this morning, and I said, basically, isn't a judge going to say to you, uh, Stormy Daniels is going to try later. and profit off of this? And why does the country have to suffer through this ugly lawsuit? Because this is the country, because it is the president of the United States. And his his job will be somewhat interrupted just so your client can profit by selling her story, which is what she wants to do. He denied that she was going to sell it, but not so sure about that. Right. I mean, look, the gamble is that Trump won't enforce the contract, that there will be ways for Stormy Daniels and this lawyer, I think, to make money from it. Perhaps they'll be indirect somehow. Maybe she'll open up a line of clothing or whatever, right? I mean, there are all kinds of ways to make money from becoming notorious. I I meant to use the word notoriety, which somehow has like a different valence from notorious. Anyway, there are many ways for her to try to use her notoriety. And we're seeing some element of that. Again, this is what happens when you surround yourself with the best people. All right. One last question on Trump and the law. We're going to leave Sam Nunberg alone. Leave him in, in his padded room. But there was this other weird story in your paper, Emily, about, uh, Trump apparently talking to witnesses who had who had uh, been interviewed by Mueller or been in front of the Mueller grand jury about what they had testified to or what they had said in interviews. Uh, is this is that a no no? Is that a no no? Is that a is that witness tampering? Is it fine? It probably doesn't rise to the level of witness tampering because for that, you would want some proof that Trump was trying to change their stories. However, it's a no-no because 
prosecutors who have lots of power in a situation like this are looking to see if if you, the potential target or a potential target, are trying to get people to coordinate their stories or in other words, in other ways, influence them. And one of the allegations or whatever you want to call it about this talking to witnesses is that Trump went to White House counsel Don McGahn and said, hey, you never did tell I never did tell (laughs) you to fire Jeff Sessions or Rod Rosenstein. Right. And McGahn was like, no, you did say that. So, in fact, it does look like he's trying to get McGahn to change his story in a way that would protect Trump against the kinds of facts that build up an obstruction of justice charge. And so that this is another piece of the mosaic of was there obstruction? What does the special counsel need to prove that, both to himself um, and to the country? The... Um also, I guess another thing could be if the president ever thinks he's going to sit down with a special counsel, he wants to figure out what other people said so he doesn't say whatever he thinks. Because for him, the truth is whatever has been said in the moment. I, That's right. Which is verifiably true because sometimes he says something at the beginning of a sentence that is different from the end of what he says at the end of a paragraph. That's so. right. And just take this particular instance. Now he knows that McGahn, if he talks to Mueller, I can't remember and all this, McGahn's been interviewed whatever, imagine that he has, then McGahn would say, yeah, Trump did tell me that. Now that's going to potentially, presumably mean that Trump isn't going to lie about it, right? And so then that changes the meaningfulness of the whatever answer he gives because he's he already knows. He, maybe he would have blustered his way into this lie um, right. and now presumably he won't, but it sort of doesn't mean as much but because I, we know that. So I can I see know. why that, how is that? You're not supposed to go around like checking your story against other people. But is that so illegal that, or it's just it's just No, I think it's just bad. It's discouraged and it gets prosecutors suspicious, right? Okay. So whether it's formally illegal or not, if you are a potential target, you do not want to do things that make prosecutors think that you're sneaking around trying to align other stories and make your but own But that's in your own better. self-interest, yes. not because it's some criminal It's not a thing. separate crime. It's about whether you're going to get indicted okay. or not. It's all about trust, right? But also, if then that wouldn't the case be different if it's a murder and you're trying to get the story straight? In this case, the underlying thing that is being investigated is whether you were trying to obstruct justice and therefore... This seems to be closer in the obstruction of justice, where with murder, it wouldn't be. I mean, it would be a new charge. But this is could a prosecutor say this is evidence, you know, pieces of evidence, 14, 15, 16 in a long story that we're telling you about? That's right. I mean, we've been for months in the zone of obstruction of justice. Doesn't mean that we're there. Doesn't mean it's like a slam dunk, but in the zone. And then there are all these facts that are accumulating and you can kind of imagine the kind of story um, an obstruction indictment could tell if such a document is ever created. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced in Sacramento this week that his Department of Justice is suing the state of California to overturn three laws California recently passed to limit the power of ICE in that state. Uh, the, The third law we won't really touch on the two more controversial laws uh, Sessions is going after. One, uh, forbid state officials in California from sharing key information with ICE officials, notably the information about when someone might be released from jail and other information that Emily will get into. And the second law, which forbids private employers from cooperating with ICE and revealing certain key employment status information to them. Is that yeah, that's, that's an accurate description, Emily. Yep. So t- tell us a little bit more about these laws, why California passed them and what California was hoping to do before we get to what Sessions is hoping to do. Well, the first law has been versions of it have passed in other states and other cities as well. And the issue here is that you have people who have been picked up on relatively minor crimes because California exempted people who have committed serious crimes and are getting out of prison. But you have like you know, the um, driving without a license, the shoplifting folks, and they're coming out of jail. And ICE would like to pick them up right there because 
the administration has been claiming they're going to prioritize getting lawbreakers and criminals out of the country. So it doesn't really matter if it's small potatoes crime. It still counts. Let's grab them. And they're right there. Someone already has them in custody. But if you don't have a warrant from a judge saying that ICE is supposed to take custody, a lot of cities and some states have taken the position like, sorry, we're not holding on to them for extra time for you and we're not going to tell you when they're getting out. And that's become a big bone of contention between ICE and um, state law and city law enforcement. And so this forbids state officials from conveying information to ICE about when these people are getting out. Yes, they're not supposed to give ICE a heads up about when they're coming out. And they're in defense of the Sessions lawsuit or to give the argument for it. There's a federal law that forbids states and cities from withholding information from the feds about your, quote, immigration status. And so this is going to be a lawsuit that in part turns on what that phrase means. It doesn't really seem to me that the obvious reading of immigration status is like when you're getting out of jail. But that's the argument. Right. And so California said we will tell you information about their immigration status. We just won't tell you when they're getting out of jail. Exactly. Exactly. And we won't transfer our people getting out of jail directly into federal custody. And what's the the second law about private employers, which I found even more confusing? Yeah, that one I know less about. I mean, I think what's going on here is what can private employers disclose to ICE? How much are workplace raids going to be something that the state tries to prevent by just making the federal government jump through more hoops to get information about which companies are employing people without the proper documents. So it all has to do with like, you know, when they're allowed to turn over I-9s and how that works. Right, so they can only do it if there is a warrant or some more formal order. They can't just do it if someone shows up. Right, exactly. And on what grounds does California make in terms of the federal versus state responsibility on immigration? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, California is saying... We know that ICE is going to operate. We know that the federal government has the power to enforce national immigration laws. We don't want our law enforcement folks to help. And in defense of California, there is a big Supreme Court decision from, must be from the 90s, because I think I was in law school, in which, uh, and this was at the time a kind of conservative triumph in which Uh, The federal government was told it cannot commandeer the resources of local law enforcement to do its work. And the idea at the time was that that was very pro-federalist, pro-states and local government power. But now California is using that as their rationale for its law. And there's a different Supreme Court decision, which at the time liberals were happy about involving Arizona, which the Trump administration is invoking. And that's a case that was like the show me your papers law. So Arizona was being... With Judge Arpaio, right? uh, Yeah, Joe Arpaio was, well, he was enforcing it very like, uh, you know, vehemently with with great excitement. But uh, basically Arizona was trying to be more restrictive than the federal government. And so the Obama administration must have been sued to stop Arizona. Arizona from doing that. And then there's a line, a helpful now to the Trump administration line in which um, Justice Kennedy for the majority said that the states may not undermine the federal power to enforce immigration laws. And so those are the two kind of clashing principles we have here. And then obviously we have like a big political battle that both, you know, Jerry Brown for the left in California is happy to be shaking his fist. And Jeff Sessions showed up in California to say, like, you guys are acting like secessionists and this is lawless and we won't have it. And so both the right and the left in this fight are, you know, profiting from the legal battle. But it is actually a really interesting legal question, too. Uh, and the president is potentially going out to California to join in here. There's a performance art piece of this between Sessions pleasing his boss by doing this and, and Jerry Brown and then the president. It's a... Right, exactly. The I can see the case for California passing these laws and I can see, uh, given the precedent you cited from the 90s, that... that um, that said you can't commandeer the resources of the state and the, the state shouldn't be forced just to spend all their time doing what the what um, the ICE feds. wants them to do. Right. But I think the idea that state government can be ordered not to cooperate with the federal government it, on matters where the state has a different policy view is, is, is troubling. It's a little weird. And aren't we going to regret it if we... If, we who may support the California legislation when this comes to abortion or education, 
that the precedent is not a great precedent. Well, so first of all, like, immigration is kind of its be, own thing, right? Like there's doctrine about immigration law that like is kind of in one lane. And in that lane, the federal government's powers are at its zenith. The Supreme Court has said that really clearly. You can see all the obvious reasons. It's the federal government that's responsible for our borders, not the right. states. So, yes, there is that. On the other hand, is what the states are doing here really undermining our um, efforts to secure the borders. These are people who are inside the country. They're in the interior, right? And the other thing, let me add one more fact, is the real... That's a very literal meaning of what the border you is. You did like that one. Okay. Well, right, because doesn't... I mean, it encourages people to come in if they can get into the middle of the country and have normal and have, lives. Right. And well, be- we already have a bunch of things in immigration law that create that incentive. So I guess you could argue they're all problematic. But one more fact about this that I think is really important. What's really at issue here is whether the local sheriff or law enforcement guy has to hang on to the misdemeanor defendant for 48 hours without an official warrant from a judge. Mm -hmm. Now, do we really want jailers to be hanging on to people for another two days? Like, for what authority do they have to do that? And then the other thing I'll say about this, and this is like my... um, observation of what's happening in Connecticut is ICE is doing things like showing up in local jails and pretending to be defense lawyers in Connecticut and getting lots of information from people because they're trying to get whoever's in custody to inform on other people who may be undocumented in Connecticut. There's a lot of like stuff going on with ICE enforcement in my state and other states that you kind of can't believe it's legal, honestly. Like they show up at your door, they can lie about who they are. They do all kinds of stuff that just seems like you're hearing about something that should not be legal under American law. And so to the extent that states and localities are trying to prevent that from happening, I I mean, look, if you really think that every undocumented person should be looking over their shoulder every day and be made as miserable as possible, and that's how we're going to get them to self-deport like, okay, but if you have any kind of heart about these people and their quasi-status here and what it's like to live in the shadows, this is pretty troubling. Yeah. the I want to go to the private employer part of it, which you said, Emily, that you're not as read into that, and nor am I. But I do understand how it's very makes sense for a state to pass a law saying what its own state officials can do. I'm a little bit queasy about the idea that the state is telling private employers what they can and can't do. It's forbidding private employers from cooperating with federal officials, even if they want to. It's saying that they may not allow them to do this thing. Is that right? I mean, this, I'm reading... It forbids them from doing... Forbids them. Yeah, I mean, you can say that that seems like... I I mean, imagine if you said you can't can't comply with an FBI, FBI, that an FBI agent shows up, you may not, you know, you may not talk to them unless he presents this specific set of onerous documents that... Right. I mean, the justification is we want to make sure that before workplace raids are conducted, all the paperwork's in order and that, you know, because otherwise, if you have people knock on your door and ask to see papers, a lot of employers are going to be nervous. They're just going to open up whether or not. I would certainly open up. Right. Sure. We all would. So you can argue that's all that California is doing here. I do think this whole question of workplace enforcement and and the role of the employers, do the employers ever get penalized as opposed to people working there? Like that's all, you know, a pretty dicey area of immigration law okay when uh you are um talking to the federal official on your doorstep emily and having a drink with that federal official what are you going to chatter to her about i am agog and amazed by a story in buzzfeed this week by mike hayes and kendall taggart about a secret list of dirty cops in new york city Basically, what's happened is that there are a bunch of cops. They've gone through internal disciplinary procedures. Some of them have done some really bad things like slug some guy on the street or fabricate evidence or lie on the stand. And they get a basically a slap on the wrist. And then they go on to a secret list that prosecutors keep that warns prosecutors against putting these folks as uh, making as using them as witnesses on the stand. Because if that happened, then their disciplinary records will come out. And this This is all possible because of a New York state law called Section 50A that forbids the public issuance, 321, forbids the public mention in court of an officer's personnel record without judicial approval. I can't believe this is legal. And yet, according to the New York Times, just last year, a court found that, yes, this law shields police personnel files. 
Meanwhile, in Philadelphia, where there's a new district attorney, Larry Krasner, he came into office. Someone leaked that the previous regime had created a similar secret list under court order. Krasner's office released it this week. And now we have, you know, a new story, new coverage in the Philadelphia press about these officers and what they've done. And it's an important moment of public reckoning of people understanding how poorly some police departments really um, investigate and uh, and treat this kind of, you know, you think of so much power that the police officers have. The notion that, you know, cops who lie would just go back to work um, the next day and then there'd be some kind of secret, essentially workaround by prosecutors so that they continue to be out on the street. It's really alarming and it's going to be interesting. There was a press conference this week, Mayor de Blasio and the uh, police chief commander in New York said, you know, we really need to get rid of the state law, but obviously there are entrenched interests and um, it's really crazy. I feel like there's got to be some other way to try and sue and end this practice. John. What is your chatter? My chatter is um, about the extraordinary news delivered by, uh, well, a variety of people have reported it. Um, But Hope Hicks, the president's former closest advisor, both in proximity and also just emotional space, who was with him for two years, um, really was responsible for managing his a variety of his moods and was in it constantly woven into <laughs> Rage, his uh, upset, yeah. disappointment, well, often fury, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, told the House uh, Investigating Committee, the House Intelligence Committee, that um, her email accounts were hacked, and she told the committee that the t- the two of her accounts, personal accounts, um, including the one she had for the Trump campaign had been compromised and she could no longer get into them. Like, so if there was <laughs> How one... How recently? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, we, we, it's unclear from the stories how long it was hacked. If it was hacked and somebody was looking at it while she was still using it and then w- at what point she got shut out. But um, wow. it seems to me that if you were to want to get an email account of a single person in the Trump orbit, it would be the personal account of Hope Hicks because she would have managed a lot of things on the president's behalf, would have shorthanded things he had said in missives to various other people. I mean, so this is just an extraordinary piece of news. Also, obviously, it has echoes of the president lampooned John Podesta for letting his email get uh, attacked or hacked during the campaign. And Don't so, forget Hillary Clinton. I mean, she was secretary of state, so that's different in right, terms and, of this sounds like the campaign, not Hope Hicks's White House account. Correct. Correct. This is her her personal but I wonder and if personal we're find slash campaign. She's using her personal email account well, during the transition you or gotta, even you, in governance. One would assume you would, even if you weren't engaged in nefarious activity. I mean, there is, of course, the whole question of using the personal versus the private relative to your public job. But also, like, you know, anybody who has multiple accounts, like, you can do all kinds of stuff inadvertently on one account or not another. Anyway, the point is that, like, somewhere out there is somebody with an extraordinary trove of material which may have nothing to do with Russia and collusion or anything else. But if they are a bad person, then presumably these emails will show up in the world someday. And yowza. Yowza. That is amazing. That did, was that even in the news? Did that just break? No, it's been in the news all day Thursday. We did a we did a, we mentioned it on on uh, on our broadcast this morning. But wow. um, just sort of, uh, I mean, I wanted to be like stop the presses, but there were there are a lot of there was a lot of a uh, lot of other news. I'm but, glad um, you flagged that I managed to completely miss it. Yeah. All right, my chatter. I have two. Uh, one extremely self serving, or at least Rosenplatzy serving, which is that my wife's podcast Invisibilia is back for its new season and it the the new season first episode i think drops on thursday on friday excuse me and it's amazing or at least hannah talking about it is amazing <laughs> it's amazing i'm sure it will I be amazing invisibilia. so invisibilia is a great podcast about the invisible forces that guide us and hannah's just been working on some incredible stories her colleagues uh, particularly her co-host elise spiegel's been working on great stories so listen to invisibilia wherever you get podcasts my other chatters, I want to flag a really interesting story by Andrew Romano and Garance Frankie Ruta on Yahoo News about a an anti-gentrification movement, mostly based out of Los Angeles. They particularly focus on a group called Defend Boyle Heights, which is trying to stop the gentrification of a largely Mexican-American neighborhood in L.A. Uh, but this group, Defend Boyle Heights and others, 
connected to it are incredibly militant. So there's some folks in Defend Boyle Heights who are just engaging in the usual forms of public disobedience and public uh, protest about gentrification. But there is a group within them uh, who are often anarchists and Marxists and uh, other ists of various sorts who are engaging in civil actions or uncivil actions or that are verging on violence. So they they uh, threatened a bike tour. There was a real estate bike tour that was going to go through this neighborhood showing clients how charming it was. And they the bike tour had to be scrapped because there was, violence was threatened. There are protests in particular at galleries because they see galleries as being the marker that's placed in a neighborhood that that draws that starts to draw development and draw uh, gentrification. Um, protests at co- hip coffee shops made unpleasant for pe- for patrons to be there. And it's just it's it's really interesting. And and like the I think these movements are like totally wrongheaded and threatening and illegal and but it does reflect the incredible rage out there about inequality and about what's happening within cities. So cool. Great story in Yahoo News. That's our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researcher, Izzy Road. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest, and you should come to our Slate GabFest live show in St. Louis on May 2nd. Please join us there. Get tickets at slate.com slash live. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, our CBS host, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>